Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. On October 5th, 2017, deep in the rainforest of Tumaco, Colombia, dozens of peasant farmers gathered to protest the Colombian police. The state forces had come to destroy their coca crops in violation of a government agreement for gradual crop substitution. But suddenly things turned deadly as the police opened fire on the unarmed campesinos. The gunfire continued for several minutes as those fleeing were shot. In the end, around 50 civilians were injured and at least eight were killed. It was the largest mass killing in the country since the end of the 53-year armed conflict, a historic peace deal barely a year old. Many say this massacre could endanger the fragile peace process and is evidence that the Colombian government is already violating its end of the deal, under which the FARC, or Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, completely disarmed. The Santos government initially denied the incident and blamed it on FARC militants, but clear evidence forced their acknowledgement of guilt Yet none of the shooters have been arrested, and only four have been placed on leave. But with victims struggling and peace in jeopardy, justice delayed is justice denied. I went to Colombia one month after the massacre and traveled far into the jungle to uncover what the government is so desperately trying to hide. The campesinos live in the most remote farmlands that took days by air, land, and water to reach. The labyrinthine canals and waterways keeps these small villages hidden inside pristine natural beauty. Because it's so difficult to transport vehicles here, the campesinos live in a web of small motorbike paths that weave through the hillsides. The Empire Files team and I had to travel on the backs of motorcycles on windy trails to get from place to place. We then hiked for miles on an isolated path leading to the site of the massacre. I spoke to one of the organizers to the protests and a witness to what happened that day. Here's where it began. During the morning, we could already hear gunshots over that area. But the massacre and such began right here. And over there, here the police were deployed, and the place was full of peasants. And over there, where that log is, you could see the police. One of the policemen shot to the ground, and the ground exploded. And suddenly he pointed upward, and that was it. One of the peasants was injured. People panicked and started running. Some took refuge among these trees here. Then they started shooting from over there, from that corner there. I stayed there. When I was on the other side, you could hear bullets whistling in the air. Over that cross, one fell. There you have another. Over there you can see another cross tied. That's where another person was killed. The rest fell down that way, I think. And the police were shooting all over there toward this area. 
You can see some logs with gunshots. This one has an impact. On this log, one of our mates say the tree saved his life. He guarded his body like this. And he could see how dead bodies were falling. And accordingly, he was a target. They shot at him. Here you see a bullet impact. And here's another. This means that this person trying to hide was also directly shot at. You can see another gunshot in that tree. We wanted a dialogue so that we could get to an agreement with them. All of us were gathered here and all of a sudden we heard gunshots from over there. I was there. A policeman shot at me and I started running away through this area where you can see the cross. I turned away in that direction. When I was running, I saw this indigenous man who fell there, where the cross lays. I turned back and saw him fall. The police were just standing there and shooting at us. At that moment, I felt nothing, because I was so scared. I was in shock. I could only think of hiding, and that's what I did. Behind that tree, there was a policeman, and he was shooting down there. When he ran out of rounds, I started running down that way. I fell down when I heard machine gun fire from that direction. I was running down there, and I started running that way. When I returned, the peasants said there were several dead and injured. I walked up the creek to help out the people who needed to get out, since the police wouldn't let us take the dead away or anything. Why do you think they did this? Maybe it is something they wanted to do. We were not hassling them or anything. We only wanted to talk. This place had a lot more vegetation. But the very next day after the massacre, a campesino made say that around 6 a.m. at twilight, there was someone chopping the vegetation, basically erasing all the evidence. How was it for you? You, you knew these people, you were here. I mean, how did it feel to see this happen? I feel absolute indignation. We are thousands of campesinos who live here, who have come here because of the war. Within time, during more than 50 years of war, many people came here displaced from elsewhere because of the war. You come here in order to survive. Um, is there anything that you feel like you've been misrepresented about? At the beginning, many media visited us. And unfortunately, after they interviewed us, they didn't publish what we wanted to tell. They gave a greater priority to the Ministry of Defense report that stated that there was only a confrontation. What is your response to the media saying this was just merely a confrontation and that you guys instigated this event? Three days later, 
The same police chief stated in the media that he had professionals here. What can I think? Maybe this was a state order, and they didn't want the truth to come out. This is what we conclude from the events. They have given priority to the narrative of a so-called confrontation, instead of coming here and talking to the campesinos to hear their side of the story. They don't publish our version. We witnessed it here and saw how the police started shooting and killing people. Another victim took me to his house, where he fled with the others, only to face more bullets. There were many people shouting, we are civilians, but the police would not stop firing. We could hear gunshots constantly. They did not stop. Even when I ran, there were already dead bodies here. Suddenly, I heard gunshots coming from over there. So I ran towards my home, up there that's right on the edge. I came here to wash my face, because it was very stingy from the tear gas. And then I heard more gunshots from that area. I got scared and ran towards that direction. But the dead were already up there, and we could still hear many gunshots. Shooting and shooting. When I was climbing up here, I could see the blood from many injured people. People who were going towards this area. I ran over there until I reached my house. What you can see here, this is a bullet hole. You cannot appreciate it very well here, but inside the wall was damaged. Look, here it is. Here you can see it better. And it came out this way. It entered from the other room, and it also reached here. This is the impact from that same shot. A miner sleeps here, and he was there when the shots came through. He was looking in that direction. He could have been hit. This bullet reached this area. Allegedly, it passed through here because you can see this hole. Here, there was a 15-year-old boy. In this area over here, you can see another impact. These are the impacts that came from that direction. There is no way you can... Well, as you can see from over there, there are no holes going in that direction. All of the bullet holes are in this area, where the campesinos were. My wife and the boy who lived there were totally asphyxiated by the tear gas. And I told them, run towards the back, because it was much safer, since the gunshots will only hit this side. They ran. When I arrived, I stepped in to get a bag of milk for our faces. And there was a senior man. And he fell out there in front of the toilet, imploring, help me, I'm injured. He was shot twice, I think. People called him Zerpa. He was shot twice here. Then he fell on his knees saying, please help me, I'm injured, I've been hit, I'm in bad shape. 
Then another man came and helped him to get over there. There were a lot more people running upwards and the gunshots just would not stop. I took the bag of milk to wash the faces of others who were coming up to escape the commotion. Suddenly someone shouted, help me get this person who is injured. I turned around and there was a young man with a broken leg. I helped him with the other people so that he reached the top of the hill. And that is what I saw that day. And there was a panic from there on. I go down there every day and remember this. Even last night, I went to wash with my wife and I sat on that stone and I started crying, remembering that I went over there to wash my face and I heard the gunshots. I could have died right there. The young man with the broken leg he saved that day is named John Mario, a survivor who has been bedridden since the incident. I was not with that group. I was talking to a policeman. And we were discussing the football match. Colombia was playing. And I said, why are you after us? We should all be watching the football match. It was early, around 9 or 9.30 a.m. And after I said that, we laughed. And then a tear gas canister was dropped. And soon they started shooting. How can I explain this? First they shot rounds in this direction. Then the people panicked, wondering why there were gunshots being fired. Then the police called their people by radio. And started shooting towards my side, where I was. I stumbled on top of my brother and fell to the ground. I stood up when I was about to reach the motorcycle path. I got shot. Here. I fell on the floor. But I didn't realize what happened. I only felt the vibration. I felt no pain. I dragged myself. Then after the motorbikes passed, I dragged about four more meters. And then I saw my leg. It was like this. But before I saw my leg, I saw an indigenous man was shot. He was hit over here, and there was blood coming out of his leg, and he fell. And then I realized I was shot too. My leg was horrible, but it kept going towards the creek. The bullet is inside of your leg. Um, how has this experience affected you both physically and emotionally? No. <laughs> One suffers a lot, you know. I used to like playing soccer a lot. It's pure boredom. Sometimes I grab a ball and play a bit with this foot. I cannot stand or anything with the other. And that's it. I spend all day lying down or sitting. I also like to play pool in the place next door. But I can't even do that anymore. State forces are here again, doing forced eradication. I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? Why do you think that they're back doing this already? I can't understand what the state pretends to do. 
I don't understand their insistence. They should stop this and bring a solution for the people injured. For instance, to me. I've had no help at all. I've paid for all of this. Do you think that the government is going to uphold its end of the deal with the substitution? And why aren't they doing that so far? I don't think so. The soldiers and the police say the eradication will continue until they dismantle every coca plantation in this area. They haven't come here with any projects or loans for the sowing of plantains or yucca. Not a single project has been proposed here. There's no solution for peasants. The only solution they bring is eradication, and that's it. As we rode through the rocks and brush, we were surrounded by coca crops. 90% of all cocaine consumed in the United States is from Colombia, and Tumaco is the epicenter. The crop eradication is premised on fighting this drug trade. But with no other options, these humble farmers have agreed to end their illicit crops in a way that doesn't destroy their livelihoods, something the government has agreed to. The state pledged $300 a month to grow another crop, like papaya. Over 100,000 families have signed up for this voluntary crop substitution program, showing the sheer number of households who rely on coca crops for their survival. But instead of following through on the terms, authorities have been forcibly eradicating coca fields, pledging to destroy 100,000 hectares of crops by the end of the year. At least half of the land forcibly eradicated thus far was in the same areas substitution agreements were signed. I visited several coca fields that had just been destroyed by state forces minutes before arriving. There they used a shovel, and here they only used machetes. In other places they used their scythes. <laughs> and below, so you can't grow anything. Yes, nothing grows. Nothing anymore. They dragged the roots. What a shame. Mm -hmm. It won't grow again. How much money was this? Well, for example, here, I used to harvest 3,400 kilograms. And in money, that is about 15 million pesos. But with the investment, you don't have much left. You have a lot of debts. All the same, we remain poor. This is how we live. This is our work. We are not getting rich. This war is pure poverty and violence. As I was explaining, if the government would help, we would not be sowing that coca plant. And that's why we're sad. Are you scared? Of course. The coca they steal from us, there are robberies, killings, kidnapping, everything. This is a very dangerous lifestyle. We try to look after the neighbors and the rest. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. If we had another job, we would do it happily. We continue cultivating this crop because there's no other means to survive. 
For instance, with plantain, you barely get to cover the costs. You understand? Now there's nothing else. If the government helped us, we would leave this crop and plant something else. I have to support my dad. He's 84 years old. I am the only son who looks after him. This is the problem we have here. With this crop, we didn't have any savings, but we could get by. And now? The government is leaving all of this destroyed. And we see no hope that we can survive this. What are you going to do now? If they offer us a choice, logically, we will stop doing this. But otherwise, we have to remain and keep on struggling. What will we do with our children and our grandchildren? We think of them. Because for us, we have lived enough. But the other generation... And what's your response to people who um, say you guys are just narco-traffickers and, you know, not victims? Well, no, we barely plant it. We don't do anything else. We just cultivate it to sell the leaves. And we don't know where they take it or anything. Oscar, how long have you been growing coca and why do you grow coca specifically, not platanos, not yuca? We are marginalized. We have no help and everything is abandoned here. There are no schools, medical centers or electricity. No roads. Our needs are based on the poverty around here. There's a lot of unemployment. There's nothing else. If you grow plantains, there is no means to take it out for sale. If you plant cassava, who will buy it? So how do we get by? The people of the coca have come here and we live from it. There's nothing else. Thousands of students have no jobs. You can see mothers here with three, four or five children studying. How do you raise them? This is what is hard here in Colombia. If the government is not aware of these facts, they basically have abandoned us. They send the army and the police. They make us run away in the wild firing their guns. What can we do? Nothing. They killed a bunch of peasants up there and others were injured. And they don't compensate them. All the injured campesinos, widows who end up with three, four, five, six or seven children, and they cry. And now they still come and destroy the crops. How do you raise these children? It's very hard here. This is what I have to say. I won't say any more because we cannot talk so much either. These actions and the massacre itself came alongside unprecedented pressure from the Trump administration, which ordered them to carry out the forced eradication at record speed or face consequences. Just weeks prior to the murder of campesinos, Trump threatened to decertify Colombia as the U.S. partner in the so-called war on drugs, declaring that Washington will not recognize the country's peace agreement, and specifically, the crop substitution arrangement. In fact, they've also demanded the Colombian government re-establish the practice of using Monsanto's toxic Roundup aerial spraying to poison the land, which the government ended in 2015 due to heavy backlash all under the auspice of fighting the flow of cocaine to the United States, which has made Colombia the third largest recipient of U.S. military aid in the world and the highest in all of Latin America. But the hypocrisy couldn't be more stark. 
According to the United Nations Drug Control Program, the Colombian government itself is in the top five of the biggest cocaine trading institutions in the world, all of them armed and trained by U.S. military intelligence in the name of anti-drug efforts. According to Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley, Peter Dale Scott, the true purpose of most of these campaigns has not been the hopeless ideal of eradication. It has been to alter the market share, to target specific enemies and thus ensure that the drug traffic remains under the control of those traffickers who are allies of the Colombian state and or the CIA. With the forced eradication active in the area we were, the campesinos showed me a hilltop occupied by soldiers who they said were part of the operation. Despite a dangerous and tense situation, I made my way up the hill to ask why they were doing this. Buenas, senor. Somos periodistas we are American journalists. We wanted a, a statement from someone about what's happening here. Is someone able to give us that? We quickly found ourselves surrounded by heavily armed troops. Are you filming? Are you filming? There are other units in the sector working on the eradication of crops. We have totally different duties here. I don't have at this time an authorization to talk about this matter, right? We are not eradicating. That's not why we are here. So you're, this, this eradication is happening without them knowing or protecting no, no, the campesinos, but they're vi it's a violation, right? So why aren't they protecting the peace agreement? Why are you pulling out the plants? We are not doing that. Yes, of course. Here you'll find different army units, and each of them has different tasks. The police were over there when the massacre was committed. We are not covering up anything. What operations are you doing? You're staying with the farmers. You're not in danger of mines. They know where the mines are buried, right? If you're near us, you may step on a mine. So you're accusing them of planting mines? No, they know where the landmines are. They know where the landmines are planted. I think you're making a serious accusation here. Yes, I would appreciate it if you'd leave, since the situation here sometimes gets pretty tense, if you understand what I mean. Some victims of the Tumaco massacre are buried here at this cemetery. Now, people in the community wonder how this can happen at a time of so-called peace, which is exactly what this banner is asking. How many more? What peace? Allegedly, in a country of peace for these events to take place is worrying. We don't know why the state takes this decision to use force. Instead of implementing the agreement, we don't understand why. We thought after the peace agreement was signed, we would have a better future, or that the war would finally end. But it turns out, things were not as we, thousands of peasants, initially thought. For us, the saddest thing is that all the media and the majority of the people in law enforcement will always look for a group to be blamed, always covering up the real perpetrators. 
There was an excessive and inhumane use of force. You can give it many names, and none of them are good. They are always trying to hide the truth and say others are responsible, so they take no blame, they can't accept there is collateral damage. We wanted to fulfill what was negotiated in Havana. That is all we campesinos were asking for. Then this massacre occurred. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel. 